Um, thanks for leading. Got some of our young folks up here helping out today, which I'm always encouraged to see. Thank you guys very much. Good job. Raise your hand if you like a Bible or a sermon page, I mean a page of notes, a notes page is the word I'm trying to say. Both of these will help you out. Um, we'll be in Philippians in a few minutes. It's page 818 or so towards the end of the Bible, about 818. And then here's a notes page. It'll help you follow along questions to reflect on after the sermon, maybe in home groups this week, if that's what you're doing in a home group. So good to see you. Welcome. May this be encouraging and challenging. It's, it, this, this content is, um, is definitely that for me. So may God, um, may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If this is your first time here today, I just hope you feel at home. I hope that you uh, are well greeted and welcomed and know that you're totally welcome here today. Uh, we're just two weeks into a fall preaching series. The series is called Anxiety and Joy. We're reading through Paul's most encouraging letter. It's a letter called Philippians because it's written to Christians who are living in a Roman colony called Philippi. The letter is Philippians, and it's the most famously, uh, it's, it's most famous for being just a letter of remarkable joy that Paul writes to the Christians there. The reason it's so remarkable that this letter is famous for joy is because the writer, Paul, is writing this letter from prison, and he is writing to people, these Christians in Philippi, who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. So we're just two weeks into this conversation about anxiety and joy based on this book called Philippians, and already I'm feeling inspired by it, and I'm feeling deeply challenged by it. In fact, I'm almost feeling daunted by this letter, to be totally honest. Here's why, here's why I'm feeling daunted. I feel myself being pulled in this Western, modern direction that I've been trained to embrace, so have you, because most of you have been trained in a Western educational setting, to break this thing up into little pieces in order to better understand it. But Paul's instruction doesn't really lend itself to being broken up into small, easy-to-understand pieces. So breaking up complex, challenging concepts into little pieces or little steps, it's what our education has taught us to do, right? Diagram a sentence. That's what one of my sons is working on. You got your subject, your verb, your object, the prepositional phrase. This is how you learn this. This is how you break apart this beautiful sentence into these little parts that, that aren't, by themselves aren't very beautiful. Or um, I never achieved this level of scientific mastery in high school. <laughs> I took the basic science stuff. But some of you dissected a cat, I'm imagining, in high school. Or maybe you dissected a frog. You walk in there two weeks into the project. There's no cats left in, anymore, right, in that room. It's just weird little individual pieces and parts. This is the way we're trained to do things. But this, and, this, and this approach has its advantages, but it also has its liabilities. For instance, you can't dissect mystery without demystifying it in the process and effectively killing it. You can't break down beauty or wonder or love and have much of any of those things left when you're done. So I'm feeling this tension in this conversation that we're having about joy because a big part of me wants to figure joy out and be able to say, follow these five easy steps and you will experience joy. I want to get to the basic elements, the basic associations. And Paul is definitely connecting dots for us. We could, we could almost start to pick out four or five different things that he's identifying. The practical side of us probably says, yes, let's do that. 
Just tell me what to do. Break it down to five easy steps. Certainly, um, in just the first few weeks, we've seen a few things, concrete reasons, actual sources of joy that Paul is identifying, such as enduring partnership. This is really sticking with me. One of the sources or the reasons that Paul says he experiences joy is because of enduring partnership in verses 4 and 5 of the first chapter. He says he always prays with joy when he prays for the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there's something we can get a handle on, right? There's something practical. Long-term partnership as a source of joy. And that sounds reasonable. But here's why I'm feeling daunted. The elements or the associations, or the reasons, or the things that we might rework as steps, practical steps that Paul is mentioning as he professes joy in the midst of suffering, are themselves super challenging. The steps themselves are super challenging. I think they're way too challenging to be reduced to steps, actually. A step is like, start your day with a glass of water. Right? Uh, or, or enter the car and then buckle your seatbelt. I mean, it's just basic stuff. I'm feeling a bit daunted, certainly challenged by the realities that Paul is connecting with joy. Like being a slave to Christ, belonging entirely to Jesus voluntarily. That is super challenging to me. Or being a saint in Christ, being wholly devoted and set apart to God for God's purpose. If these are steps, they're, they're enormous. They're like way too big in my mind to qualify as steps. Or this, Paul acknowledges the different ways that the Christian community is responding to his being imprisoned. Some are emboldened because Paul's put in jail. Some are more afraid because Paul's put in jail. Some leverage Paul's situation for their own advancement. But he says what matters is that Christ is preached And then he says, and because of this, I rejoice. Because of what? Because Christ is preached, he's rejoicing. So check yourself for a second. Is the the reality that Christ is preached, that the message that Jesus came into the world to restore all things, does that cause you joy? Does it move the needle on your practical daily experience. Do you feel more joyful when you hear about the gospel being preached? Is that even in the same category as what you are looking for when you say you're, you're looking? I imagine you all think the gospel being preached is a good thing, that you're grateful that it happens, but does it sound joyful to you? Does it cause joy to come up in your heart? Or here's another one, Paul connects suffering with joy. He says the joy of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Does does that sound joyful to you? My point is this. I'd like to be able to share five practical steps to a joyful life. And I suppose, if forced, we could cram Paul's message to fit that Western mold and we could build a series like that. But what I'm feeling as as we read this letter together, I'm feeling two things. One, I'm feeling super inspired. I'm inspired because true, enduring, apparently undefeatable joy is possible even in prison, even in suffering, no matter what happens, that is so inspiring to me. And friends, the other thing I'm feeling is a real gut check because the devotion 
to God, which is the context for this conversation in the first place, this conversation about joy, this devotion is so strong. It is super strong. It's devotion that is so strong that it is the true priority or the true priority of this devotion is that the gospel is preached. Like that's the most important thing. It's devotion that is so strong that to be united with Jesus in any way, even if that way is to suffer with Jesus, that that is the source of sincere joy. I mean, we're not hearing Paul talking to the Philippians about just sprinkling a little Jesus on their self-centered lives in order to be happier at the end of the day. Do you see the difference? We're talking about remarkable devotion. He's talking about a transformation of perspective and values that is so profound. I'll talk more about that next week. But the whole thing is characterized by devotion of one's whole life to Jesus, no matter what happens. The highs and the lows and everything in between. Devotion to God. That's the context, that's the container, devotion to God, in which this whole conversation about joy is taking place. It's inspiring to me, on one hand, because I'm reading about a joy that seems to thrive in the middle of life's hardest situations. It's like a drought-resistant plant. It's going to thrive even when it's like impossible for it to work, right? I'm reading about that kind of thing, and it's inspiring to me. It's also daunting to me because, frankly, the letter assumes a level of devotion to loving Jesus and living for Jesus that forces me to ask myself some really hard questions. In other words, at one level, I wonder if the joy that Paul is talking about is even the joy that we're looking for, just to be really honest. I think it's the joy we need, to be clear. I'm not sure it's the joy we're looking for. The sad reality is that we, like C.S. Lewis said last week, he was here, did you hear? No, I quoted him. Um, We are far too easily pleased. Like a lot of the time, I'd I'd just be happy with a turkey sandwich. That's really all I want, you know, or or the equivalent therein of some sort of spiritual, that's good enough. That's all I'm really looking for. But I, friends, I have experienced real pain. I've experienced deep pain. So I know what that feels like. And I know I'm going to deep, I know I'm going to experience deep pain again. And I know that I will need, I know the kind of joy that is required in order to not be defeated by real pain. Um, and I know I'm going to need that kind of joy again. I know that's the only thing that sustains a person through dark days. So I know I need the joy that Paul is talking about. You know you need the joy that Paul is talking about. Most of the time, we're not looking for it. That's like the sobering reality that I'm dealing with as I read this letter over and over throughout the week. Am I nurturing this? Am I searching this out? Am I prioritizing this? Am I seeking this? So the danger in reading a letter about joy that will sustain you through your darkest days is hearing this profound wisdom, but you're like a, a sophomore in high school. It's just going over the top of your head. It's just going over your head. You're not even, it's not, it's not hitting. 
It's like you're not even looking for it. You don't even realize the brilliance and the wisdom that's going right over the top of your head. We need this joy, but we don't feel like we need it. So we probably most of the time dumb it down. We dumb Paul's words down. We turn his words into five easy steps for like a less stressful morning or something silly. Lightweight, watered down, some sort of incompetent variant of the truth. And that's simply not what it is. What it is is wisdom. What we're reading in Philippians is wisdom gained through the experience of battling anxiety and battling fear and battling physical assaults and not being defeated by them. That's the wisdom that is in this book. And so we should pay attention to it. We have access to ancient wisdom that knows the way to joy even in the midst of pain. So at the end of Paul's first chapter, this is what he says. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he continues a little later, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. And now to chapter 2 of Philippians, where Paul thankfully and gracefully casts the net out very wide again and invites his readers into the process of growing in devotion to Jesus that really he's been assuming is the reality in the first chapter. So here at the beginning of the second chapter, casts the net wide, invites everybody, okay, here, come into this. Come into this school of devotion and learn to grow in devotion to Christ. So in in other words, after being deeply challenged in chapter 1, almost daunted by the level of devotion that I hear Paul talking about. I now read Paul saying, essentially, yes, I'm talking about a robust, full-strength joy, a joy that is actually potent enough to do battle in real life, and that may be more than you are looking for, and it may be more than you even think you need right now, and it's probably actually more than you can handle But I invite you to enter into the process of discovering this real, deep, lasting, powerful joy. Because whatever happens to us, this is part of what we have to offer the world. Right? This is part of what we have to offer the world. A whole different kind of joy. Almost a different definition of joy. Here's the invitation. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit or any fellowship with others in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. We go back through that quickly. Paul's basically saying, if you've been affected at all by the love of Jesus, if this has touched you at all, if you have any encouragement, if you've been comforted at all, if you have any tenderness that you would say, yes, that came from my connection with God, if you have any sense of compassion, which you know isn't from yourself, it came from God. In other words, he's like, hey, if this is working at all for you, 
If you can say, yes, this has helped me at all, if you've gotten a taste of any kind of joy, then he says, love one another. That's the step. Love one another, if we have to put it under step language. Earlier in the chapter, Paul's prayer for the people was that their love would abound. And then here he calls them to a love-motivated unity. Why should we be unified? Because of love. Love should bring us together. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. And here is where you hear his heart as a father for these people coming out in his letter. He says, when you love one another, you'll complete my joy. And, and some of you, I'm just, I'm just getting to that stage. When I, when I see my kids not getting along and not working on getting along, it breaks my heart. Thankfully, it doesn't happen a lot. But when it does, it, it, it affects me on a deep level. Conversely, when I see my kids at peace, when I see my kids hanging out and enjoying one another, when I see them all together... When I see them loving one another, there's like no other joy like that. Um, my wife's been in Nicaragua all week helping her parents. Her dad's 83. They have a beautiful backyard with this patio. It goes up against a river. It's like a rainforest. And she said that he said, I just would like to have all my children here for one afternoon in the backyard. Like that's all he wants, right? That's what I hear in Paul. It's like, make my joy complete. Paul's like, I'm joyful. Prison's working out fine. I mean, not really. But like, he's, he's found the joy, right, even in the midst of the suffering. What could be better if, if, if you could complete my joy by loving one another is, is what I hear him saying. So essentially, that's Paul's message to start chapter 2. There will be all sorts of challenges that you face. There will be all kinds of varied ways that the church will say we should address these challenges. But I'm urging you to enter into this journey with deep or journey toward joy. How do we enter into that journey? By loving one another. By loving one another. Which, sadly, we don't even really know what that means anymore. And thankfully, he tells us right here in verse 5. How do we love one another? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, <laughs> okay, there's another challenge, right? I mean, this guy's blowing me away with every couple sentences. How do I love others? Oh, just have the same attitude as Christ. Have the same mindset as Christ. And now Paul quotes a hymn that apparently is used in the early Christian community. They would sing this song in worship. It was used to teach them about Jesus. And this hymn that you see in Philippians 2 is one of the most oft-quoted and commented on sections in the New Testament because it is such a pithy, succinct, brilliant, condensed exclamation of who Jesus is and what he did in his ministry. I'm sure Paul valued the hymn for its effectiveness in catechesis or in the ability to correctly instruct the church. But here he's quoting this hymn in order to cast a vision for Christian love for the church. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then here he explains it by quoting this hymn. Who, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So Jesus, who is God the Son and God the Father, share the same 
nature. They are of the same substance or maybe the same essence. They are equal, God the Son and God the Father. And yet God the Son is not leveraging his own equality with the Father for his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Jesus, who is divine in nature, who is God, takes on a second nature, a human nature. When I would teach this to kids, I'd say, Jesus is 200%. Right? He's all God and all man. He takes on this human nature. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And then verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, in other words, you know him because he showed up as a human. That's why we even know him. He, he appeared to us as a man, which required what? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what we're reading here, friends, in these first, what, three verses, is like the steepest possible descent it's like a diamond route. It's like straight down. We start with God and we end up death on a cross. The creator takes on the nature of the created, is then humbled, experiences death, and death on a cross. The giver of life submits to death. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. The, the, Jesus is the word through whom everything is created, and yet he becomes a victim of state-sponsored assassination and the worst form of public humiliation, like he's just a common man. What is, why is Paul telling us this? Because in our relationships with one another, our attitude, our mindset, Paul writes, it should be the same as that of Christ, who did what specifically? Who humbled himself profoundly. So here's where the rubber hits the road, right? When love requires you to choose humility, isn't that, isn't that really when it gets real? When love shifts from that Valentine's Day, married, you know, wedding day to, oh, now I have to choose humility. Now I have to take the humble place. Paul is advocating for a love that is expressed in true humility. Um, when you're right, but it's not about being right, it's about being loving, and so you humble yourself. Why? Because that's what love does according to Jesus. It humbles itself. That is Christian love. That is Jesus' love. It's love that humbles itself. But she doesn't deserve it. <laughs> it's totally irrelevant, right? It's totally irrelevant. None of us None of us deserved this love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans. It's not about merit. It's never been about merit. Whether you deserve it or not, or he or she deserves it or not, it's totally irrelevant. If you're defining love in Christian terms. But he's so rude. Okay, rude is not right, but it doesn't change the Christian response, right? We're still called to the same kind of response. Paul isn't talking about what you deserve. Paul isn't talking about situational ethics. Paul is talking about the mindset of Christ. He's talking about the attitude of Christ. He's talking about being consistently moved by love. Jesus himself 
humbled himself to, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We have this massive drop, this huge descent. In theology books, this hymn is diagrammed like a big letter V. And we just went from the top to the very bottom, and now uh, Paul begins the ascent. That was the descent of Christ, and now here's the ascent. I won't take a lot of time to comment on this. Let me just read verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everywhere. That's everyone. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I won't take time to go through this, but I want you to notice how the first line in the hymn, this is in your notes, corresponds with the last line in the hymn. And the second to the first line in the hymn corresponds to the second to the last line in the hymn. You see this complete reversal. You see this descent followed by a complete ascent. All right, let me say this in conclusion. Why is this hymn included at this point in Paul's letter about anxiety and joy? I think it's because he's pointing out the way to victory here. He's saying this is the way to joy. He's saying humility is the way to joy. Humility is what God rewards because it is the way of Jesus. This is the way joy comes. This is because, because Jesus demonstrated this, because this is the truth according to Jesus. I realize that we're talking about a level of Christian devotion, friends, that few of us have really ever seen in real life, let alone experienced. I mean, how many people do you know that have been physically beaten for their faith? Do you know anybody who's been imprisoned by the state for preaching the gospel? So, yes, we're not just reading the most encouraging letter that Paul ever wrote. We're reading the most encouraging letter that Paul wrote to people who are suffering because of their faith at a level that most of us just simply can't relate to, at least experientially. I once heard a Northern California preacher preaching this text and give as an example of suffering the hit that his 401k had taken during the recession, you know, God bless him. He was trying to make it relatable, and I felt like he had no idea what Paul was talking about. And I realized that I have no idea what Paul is talking about either, experientially. I've never suffered for my faith like he is, like those who are reading this letter are. But here's what I'm taking away from this, friends, and here's what I invite you to consider as well. If any, if any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, I do. I do. Yes, I, I have encouraged. Do you have any comfort from his love? Absolutely. I do. Have you been in prison? No, I haven't. I have no idea what that would be like. But I have received comfort in, in hard situations. Do you have any common sharing in the spirit? In other words, do you have fellowship with others simply because they also love God? Yes, I do, and I value that. There's great encouragement that comes to me through the fellowship. Do you have any tenderness 
you have any compassion, I would say, yeah, there are glimpses of it <laughs> that, that show up, and it's from God. I've, I, I've experienced, so what should I do? I've tasted that, Paul. If any, if that's what we're talking about, yes. That net is really wide. I don't get the devotion that you're talking about on a lot of levels here, but that net is really, yes, I've experienced this, so now what do I do? He says, love one another. Love one another. And, and I got to go, how? Because some of the things that I'm doing that I think are expressions of love are not being perceived as loving. Some of the criticism I've received in the last couple of years have been because my efforts have not been perceived as I had hoped they would, which reveals that, frankly, there are certain people in certain situations I don't even know how to love. I apparently can't seem to figure it out very well. So how do I love people? Humility. That's what Paul says. Humility. Have the same attitude as Christ. Your mind should be the same as Christ. You're, you need to embrace humility, and you need to go all the way with it. Not sample it. Not sprinkle a little humility on top of your agenda. You, this is an all or nothing. you got to ride this all the way to the end. This is a school of humility. This is a lifetime journey in humility. Loving like Jesus is the call to humility. Friends, this is the school you enter in order to know joy even in the midst of suffering. Amen? Amen. God, help us with this. I feel like I can barely wrap my head and my heart around what I hear Paul teaching here. And I pray for grace. I know you have big plans for us individually and as a community that we are not uh, somehow disqualified from experiencing the kind of joy that Paul's talking about just because most of our experiences haven't been as hard as Paul's. And yet I pray for a wisdom and a grace that enables us to kind of let the values of our culture wash off of us enough that we can see what's real and what really doesn't last. And I pray for your grace for each of us this week to intentionally nurture and embrace uh, a deepened humility that causes us to love other people. And that through that, somehow, uh, increasingly we would know your joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.